Good morning, Three Rivers Church. My name is Eric, and uh, it is a joy and an honor to be here and to uh, open the Word and uh, preach the Word this morning. Um, again, as, as Jim said, if you're a guest, we want to make you guys welcome here. Um, if you are a guest, again, what we do here is we preach through books of the Bible. Um, we just recently finished uh, kind of journeying through uh, Luke to the resurrection uh, leading up to Easter. So we kind of took some different passages of Scripture and and looked as we were going to the resurrection of Christ, the most significant event in all of history, the resurrection of Christ. And we looked through the book of Luke, uh, which Luke wrote to this guy named Theophilus. And then also the book of Acts is to this same guy, Theophilus, written by uh, Luke. And so we are in the early stages of the book of Acts, um, one of my favorite books. Um, and so we are uh, in chapter 2, uh, in verse 14 through 41 this morning. Um, let me pray for us before we read the scripture. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to it. Lord Jesus, I pray right now that you would speak through my mouth, Lord. Um, help me to not say anything that would be contrary to your spirit, Lord. I pray that your spirit would speak through me. I pray you give us ears to hear. I pray you make us more like Christ today. I pray that you would teach us, correct us, help us to pursue holiness in our lives. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would um, just teach us. And help us to hear and respond in obedience to your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, again, my name is Eric. And uh, our text, Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 41. Uh, this is a significant passage of scripture. Apart from Jesus' sermon on the mount and all of his teachings, this is the best sermon ever preached. Mainly because of where it is preached at. How God has sovereignly set the stage for this sermon to be preached. And ultimately the response of the people who will, we will see where a huge number of people respond to the gospel. And put their faith and their trust in Jesus. It's not going to happen here as many people have responded at Pentecost. But this is a huge passage of scripture. Okay, And it serves as a foundation of how all of our preaching and proclamation of the gospel should be done. It is a sermon that is rooted in Scripture. It exalts the very person of who Christ is, Christ is, which is how preaching should be done. God has set the stage perfectly for this sermon. And from this passage, from the passage before this, all the people are confused as to what is going on. They are mocking and saying that everyone is drunk and Peter is going to be used by God to deliver this powerful sermon and explain exactly what is going on. So we looked in, in the first chapter of Acts where uh, Luke writes this letter to Theophilus and he says, this is what happened after the resurrection. Jesus appeared to his disciples during 40 days teaching them the disciples are still kind of confused because they're like jesus are you now going at this time establish the kingdom and he says no because the kingdom's not on the earth the kingdom is in heaven okay and you're but you guys are going to be used to preach and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom on the earth but my kingdom's not of this world okay and so in chapter 1, Jesus ascends to the heavens. The, the disciples are kind of looking up. And an angel's like, why are you looking around? The same Jesus who ascended will come back the same way. And then, and then we see where uh, the disciples choose Matthias to, be, to replace Judas. Because remember, Judas denied Jesus, sold him out, killed himself. And so the disciples say, hey, we've got to have one more person who witnessed this. So they, they meet together. They get the 12 disciples. And then in chapter 2, chapter 2, we see where the coming of the Holy Spirit, where Mitch talked um, about last week. And, and Jesus also promised this in, the, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, stay here 
until the Holy Spirit comes. Okay, so the disciples are there. The Holy Spirit comes just as Jesus uh, promised. And uh, and I really appreciated how what Mitch talked about, especially comparing the Tower of Babel to the to Pentecost here, and just seeing how the curse has been reversed. Okay, that's what that's what Jesus came to do. So. We have all these people who are who are speaking these languages in there. And in verse 11, it says, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So these people are speaking in languages and they're proclaiming the mighty works of God. And in verse 12, it says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? So there are some people there who, We don't know what this means. What, what's going on? What is up with all these people speaking these languages? And what are they... What are they doing? And in verse 13 it says, But others mock said that they are filled with new wine. So some people are like, these people are drunk. They don't know what they're doing. They're, they're just saying all kinds of different stuff. And so God has set the stage. People are confused. And Peter's going to be used to preach and to explain what is going on and what has just taken place here at Pentecost. Okay, this is, this is a huge passage. And so... I'm going to uh, really try to give us everything that we can uh, from this passage um, without being here for for a year. But um, I don't know if anybody ever listens to John MacArthur, uh, but John MacArthur has preached. I, I listen to some of these, and he's got like 20 sermons on this passage because he preaches like two verses at a time. I don't know how the guys preach through the whole New Testament in his life because he just, uh, I mean, he just preaches one verse at a time, but um, love him, love him. So in verse 14, observation number one, kind of one thing that, that we've been doing through here is kind of teaching us how to study our Bible, okay? And so we kind of look at some observations from these from these passages and then kind of look at some applications and how we can apply them to our lives, see what the Lord is saying here, what He's uh, speaking to us. So observation number one is in verse 14 and 15. Peter boldly stands up and addresses the crowd. This is very intriguing because prior to, prior to this, there were two huge events that happened in the life of Peter Okay, the first thing that happened in the Gospels, if you guys remember, is that Peter denied Christ. You guys remember this? Peter denied Jesus. Jesus even tells Peter, uh, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, no, I won't. No, I won't. I'll, I will even die for you, Jesus. And we oftentimes see Peter in this in this situation through the Gospels where he's either saying the wrong thing or... Or like at the transfiguration where we see Jesus is transfigured and we see Moses and Elijah. And it's, it's Jesus, James, and John. And Peter's like, Jesus, it's good that we're here. Let us build three tents. And it says because he didn't know what to say. So he's just like, he, he doesn't know what to say. And so Peter oftentimes is kind of in these situations where he doesn't know what to say. Or, or he just says the wrong thing. And Jesus tells Peter... Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, no, I won't. I'll, I, will, I will lay down my life for you. And what does Peter ultimately do? On the night that Jesus is arrested, is being taken away, being falsely accused, he lies to a teenage girl. And he hears the rooster crow and he, he realizes, I've denied Christ three times. So what caused Peter to go from denying that he knew Christ. So what happened from he denied Jesus that he knew him to boldly standing at Pentecost and preaching the gospel. Like this is something that I'm like, how does this happen? Like, because it's not very long ago, 50 days ago from when Jesus was killed. So what happened to Peter? Well, Peter saw the risen Lord in John chapter 21 and that changed everything for him. If you guys remember in John chapter 1, or John chapter 21, excuse me, when Jesus has been resurrected, people are going to the tomb, and they're, they're like, the stone's been rolled away, Jesus is, is gone. In John 21, we see where Peter and some of the other disciples are out fishing, right? Because that's what Peter did before Jesus came along and called him. And so Peter's out fishing, him and some of the other disciples. They've been fishing all night, and they hadn't called anything. And then they see in the distance 
someone standing on the on the shore and they say, hey, men, have you caught any fish? And they're like, no, we haven't caught any fish. It's been all night. And Jesus and, and they and the guy says, throw your nets to the right side. And what happens? They get a bunch of fish, one hundred and fifty three fish. And you know what? Peter is very. Oh, it's awesome to see that this in scripture. It says they didn't even have to ask who it was. Because they knew it was Jesus. Because they had saw the signs that he had, he had done. And they're like, we haven't caught any fish. And then this guy just says, throw your nets on the right side. And we've caught 153. That has to be Jesus. And what does Peter do? Peter jumps out of the boat and runs to the lake, to the shore. Why? Because he is coming in repentance and saying, Lord Jesus, I denied you. Forgive me. That's what Peter has done. And that's how he can boldly stand at Pentecost and preach the gospel. Because he has, he has denied Christ. He realizes the emptiness of, of denying his Lord that he followed. And when he sees him for who he is, because he just saw his leader die. Now he's back alive. He's like, I'm sold. I, I believe. I follow you. And that's what Peter does. And he boldly stands here at Pentecost to preach the gospel. He is spirit filled and preaches the first sermon in the early church and is the greatest sermon. Application, how can we apply this to our lives? When we see Jesus for who he really is, it changes everything. I can remember as a kid growing up in church, doing the church thing praying a prayer and and thinking I'm good. But not until I realized I am a sinner. I am broken. I am messed up. I do not desire Christ. I'm saying I'm a Christian, but I'm not living like a Christian. And I realized I am not living my life the way a Christian should. And the Lord revealed himself to me and it changed everything. It changes everything. Because the Bible refers to salvation as as a process of coming from death to life. And that is something that that is a radical change. That is something that nobody like if we saw someone come from death to life, we understand that they are no longer the same person. Right. Like that is a, a miracle. And that's what that's how the Bible describes our salvation is that we have come from death to life. We've been brought out of darkness into light. We're no longer the same. So that's how Peter going from rejecting, denying Christ to boldly standing and preaching the gospel. He he saw the risen Lord for who he really is and it changed everything for him so much that he would ultimately die on a cross not the way that Christ did but upside down because he was not worthy to die the same way that Jesus did. That's how serious he was about the gospel and that's how seriously we should take the gospel. When the gospel takes hold of our lives we no longer live in the same bondage and enslaved to the sin that we once were in christ frees us gives us new life gives us new identity so that's the first observation about peter verse 14 and 15 peter standing with the 11 lifted up his voice and addressed them so now peter is going to lift up his voice and he's going to address the crowd men of judea and all who dwell in jerusalem let this be known to you and give ear to my words so what peter's saying he's like everybody listen up what i have to say is very important listen up i'm fixing to explain what is going on here at pentecost verse 15 for these people are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day so so in verse 13 is where it says they're filled with new wine you know people are mocking they say they're drunk Peter says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, because it's only the third hour of the day, which is nine o'clock in the morning. Now, I, I'm sure some of you guys do, but don't raise your hand. But I don't know anybody who gets drunk at nine in the morning. Like, that's just I, I actually I probably do know some people, but nobody gets drunk at nine in the morning. All right. And that's what and that's what Peter says. He's like, it's nine in the morning. Nobody's drunk. 
But what Peter, but the, these Jewish odd, the people in the in the crowd would understand this because it goes much deeper than just people being drunk at nine in the morning. In the Jewish context, people would not eat or drink before the first meal, and this is the hour of prayer for these people. So there's so Peter say he's 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 not being funny or sarcastic by saying it's nine in the morning and they're not drunk. He's saying. It's it's only nine in the morning. The first meal hasn't even happened, and, and the the Jews don't eat or drink before then. This is their hour of prayer. They devote to prayer. They're not eating. They're not drinking, so they can't be drunk. That's what he's saying, and that's probably a much better way to put it than it's nine in the morning. And people are drunk. So, verse sixteen. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So now, what Peter is going to do? Now he's starting his sermon, and he's saying these people aren't drunk. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So number number two, observation. There are two parts to Joel's prophecy. Number one, we find in verse 17 and 18. And it is the coming of the Holy Spirit is fulfilled. Verse 17, it says, And in the last days it shall, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So what we have here is Joel, an Old Testament writer, prophet who prophesied about this day coming as the Holy Spirit's being poured out. And. Just a, another quick note, as we are kind of looking through this study of Acts and kind of looking at how we should see how the, to study our Bible, this is, this is a, a, a good point because when we look in the Old Testament and we see where Joel says this and then we flip over to Acts and we see it being fulfilled, then we see Okay, everything's coming together. God's being faithful to His Word. God's being true to His Word. I read it back here in the Old Testament, and now it's coming to fulfillment in the New Testament. Okay, that's that's good fulfilling of the Word. And that's that's what is happening here. Peter's saying that Joel prophesied of this day of the Holy Spirit. And also Jesus in John 14 promise that after his death and resurrection the father would send the helper who is the holy spirit you guys remember this in john 14 where jesus says um i'm not going to leave you as orphans when i go to the father i will send you the helper and he even says it is better for me to go to the father and send the helper which that is if you just think about it because you hear a lot of people they're like oh, i wish i could have been around when jesus was uh, walking the earth but Jesus says, it is better that I, that I go and I send the helper. Number one, he has to go because he has to die for the sins of the world. But number two, now he can send the Holy Spirit into each person who calls on the name of the Lord. And they have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. They are the temple of God and he convicts and works in their lives. And so Jesus also prophesied or promised of the coming of the Holy Spirit and Joel prophesied of this. And so we are seeing this coming to fulfillment, Old Testament prophecy coming in fulfillment. The second thing under the first part of Joel's prophecy is that the Holy Spirit is not tied to a particular group of people, but rather it is poured out on all flesh. Verse 17 it says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So the Holy Spirit isn't only so we know that God, had, had, the Jews are God's chosen people. But the Holy Spirit isn't only limited to these Jews. It's not saying that the, the Jews are the only people who can take part of this because they're God's people. No, Joel is saying and Peter is saying, no, the Holy Spirit is for it's for all flesh because it says your sons, your daughters, old men, young men, male servants, female servants. It's for everybody who will call in the name of the Lord. That's who it's for. It's not tied to a particular group of people. In verse 17, the image of the pouring out of the spirit is of a torrential downpour on a parched earth. So if you think of like a, a torrential downpour, like 
rain coming down. It's, it's hard blowing. That's the, that's the picture of the Spirit coming down. Like it is just raining down on these people at Pentecost. It's raining down. The Spirit being available to all who will believe in Christ is probably best explained in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. So if you will, just turn over to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, chapter 11. So Paul, the writer of the book of Ephesians, has just gone through verses 1 through 10 there where he talks about us being dead in our sins and how uh, salvation is by grace alone not of anyone's work so that no one can boast and then he goes on in, in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2 and he says therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached, preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So Paul's saying, Jews, Gentiles, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There's no distinction. There's no two spirits for you Jews and you nasty Gentiles. That's not, it's one spirit for all. One spirit for all. Uh, continue on, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here in Ephesians 2, we see we're one in Christ. What Christ has done on the cross he has broken down the hostility. He has brought us near, given us access through one spirit to the Father. Alright, so if we flip back to Acts chapter 2. The third thing under the first prophecy of Joel is in verse 17. And it's the phrase, in the last days. Okay, now... We live in a culture and a world that is obsessed with signs and they're like the end of the days are at hand. Like Jesus is coming. Target just allowed transgender bathrooms. So the end of the Lord is coming at hand and politics are messed up and marriages are broken. And so Jesus must be coming soon. And in a sense, they are correct. We do see the world is broken, is messed up, and that the return of Christ is closer and closer each day. But, in another sense, they're wrong. Because we have been living in the last days for 2,000 years now. The last days didn't just begin with um, a, a couple laws being passed and, and everything going wrong. The last days began with the coming of Christ. We are now living in the last days. The last days began with the coming of Christ. If you guys remember in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus comes on the scene, he's been baptized. He's now beginning to do his public ministry. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He says, the time to repent and believe is now. Because I'm here. The kingdom's coming. And these are now the last days. And so... We're living in the last days. Christ is, is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. So everything, 
all the way back in Genesis chapter 3.15 when our first parents fell and they sinned. And in Genesis 3.15 where God said that there would be one who would come who would crush the head of the serpent, which is referring to Jesus. And everything from there, prophets are prophesying and pointing us to the coming Christ. The coming Messiah. And when the Christ came, the last days began. Because there's no other person we're looking for to come on the scene to save us. Right? We, are, we, we have no hope in no other Messiah. We have no hope in no other uh, King. We have no hope in any other Christ. Because Christ has come and He has died for us. He alone is our salvation. So, with the coming of Christ, we've been living in the last days. Just so happens it has extended 2,000 years now. And also, when people, unbelievers specifically, um, will oftentimes refer to Christians who, who will say that you all the time talk about the, the coming of the Lord. The Lord's going to come. He's not going to come. Well, Peter addressed this issue in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. He says, scoffers will say. And so if Peter is writing this in whenever he wrote his letter, 2 Peter, which was a long, long time ago, and it still applies to us today, we should probably pay attention because even Peter said, scoffers will say, where's the promise of his coming? So unbelievers all say, you all the time talk about Jesus returning. He's not... Where, where, where is he? Where is he coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continue, continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So unbelievers, scoffers oftentimes will say, man, things have just been going the same way they have for 2,000 years now. There's no return of Jesus. He's not coming. But maybe... And Peter goes on in that section to say that you may say that the Lord is, is slow in this, but the Lord doesn't, he, he doesn't do time the way that, that we do. Because he says that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. And so the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises because he goes on to say, what, what does Jesus desire? He desires that all should come to repentance and put their faith and trust in Him. So when unbelievers scoff at you and say, you've been saying that Jesus is coming for years, maybe you should say, maybe He's being gracious enough to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel and believe before it's too late. That should be, that, that's, that's, what, that's what we're doing. Jesus is not slow in fulfilling His promises. He's patient and long-suffering so that people will come to know Him. So we've been, so we're living in the last days. We've been living in the last days. Joel's prophecy is fulfilled here at Pentecost. The second thing of Joel, uh, the second part of Joel's prophecy is found in verse 19 and 20. It says, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vaporous smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So, the second part of Joel, Joel's prophecy of the Lord will be fulfilled. So the first thing we see is Joel's prophecy is fulfilled with the coming of the Spirit. This part of the pro prophecy has not been fulfilled. This is something that will happen because it, it, it refers to the return of the Lord. Now in verse 19 and 20, I'll be honest with you. When it talks about the signs of the earth, the moon, the blood. We, again, we live in a, in a culture and a world who is like obsessed with signs. They're like looking at, you know, blood moons and, and things like that. I, I, I do not know if this is literal, if, we, if this is literal or if this is a symbolic picture of the return of Christ. Okay. But I think the main point here in this in this passage of Joel's prophecy is that the Lord will return one day because we're living in the last days as verse 17 says then there will be a return of the Lord 
the day of the Lord in verse 20, where it says the day of the Lord before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Old Testament prophets would often refer to the day of the Lord as a day of judgment. So the Old Testament prophets would say the day of the Lord or thus saith the Lord on the day of the Lord usually meant judgment. And so and the and these Jews would understand this because they would understand that once Messiah came, there would be the end times. And so they would be looking for this. The day of the Lord, um, this is an awful day for the unrepentant and unbelieving person because on this day it is too late to come to Christ. When the, when the Lord returns, He is coming to make war on His enemies and those who do not put their faith and their trust in Him alone for salvation. So it is an awful, awful, dreadful day for those people So how so application here, verse 21 says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if we're living in the last days and the Lord is coming, then there is an urgency for those who do not know Christ to call in the name of the Lord. Come to Jesus before it is too late. Because we are now living in the last days, the return of Christ is closer and closer each day. There is an urgency for those who do not know Christ to call upon His name for salvation. Joel's prophecy is full of promise and and fulfillment. It's already been fulfilled and it will be fulfilled with the return of Christ. And it's also a promise that for those who call on the name of the Lord, that, that you'll be saved. Call on the name of the Lord. Only in the name of Jesus is our salvation. And that's what Peter is urging these people because we need to remember Peter's preaching this sermon at Pentecost who 50 days ago they just killed Jesus. And Peter's saying the guy you just killed, that's the one you need to put your faith in. Because he is the king. He's the Lord. He's Messiah. He died and he was resurrected. So you should believe in him. So going on, number three, uh, this is point number three, observation number three. It is found in verse 22 through 24. So now what Peter is going to do is he is going to, he, he has preached, he has started off his sermon by looking at the prophet Joel, looking at how Joel's prophecy is fulfilled, how it will be fulfilled. Now he's going to turn his preaching to the person in the life of Jesus, all right? So, which is the central part of any preaching. We exalt Christ, we lift Christ up, and we preach Christ. And that's exactly what Peter is going to do here in in 22 through 24. The life of Jesus, Jesus is God. Number one, the incarnation. In verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. So again, he is calling these people as he started off the sermon. Everybody listen up. He's saying, Hear these words. They're important. Pay attention. Jesus of Nazareth. He, he is referring to Jesus of Nazareth because that's he is being specific. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the one who in John chapter 1, you guys said nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. This guy, Jesus out of Nazareth, he was from Nazareth. He was a good, he, something good came out of him. A man attested to you by God. Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God. Meaning, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man who had the favor of God on his life. If you remember in John, again, where Jesus is is baptized, and when he comes up, God speaks and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased with. So Peter says, he's attested by God. He is approved by God. And this is what he did. He did mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So Peter's saying, Jesus of Nazareth, he did mighty works. I mean, we can spend a ton of time going through the Gospels and looking at the things Jesus did. He turned water to wine. He healed people. He gave people 
sight, who couldn't see. He gave people the ability to walk, who couldn't walk. He uh, fed 5,000 people. He brought Lazarus back to life. <laughs> like, who, who does that? You know? A guy who's been dead four days and Jesus goes and he tells him to, to come out and he comes out. I mean, like, nobody does that. And so Peter's saying he did mighty works. He did all kinds of works. He did wonders. People would see these works and they would begin to wonder. They'd be like, who is this guy? You know, like he's going around disrupting everybody. He's, he's, he's healing people and people don't like it. And, and he's just continuing to go. If you also remember uh, Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3, who was a Pharisee, who was part of, who, who they didn't like Jesus. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he, he probably didn't want his other Pharisee friends to see him talking with Jesus. And what does Nicodemus say? He says, I know you are a teacher who has come from God. Nicodemus realized this. And he wasn't even a Christian. He was a Pharisee. People would realize that there is something up with Jesus that is not normal. And so Nicodemus says, I know you are from God, for nobody could do the things you're doing unless God were with him. So he would do mighty works. People would wonder. And he did signs and signs that God did through him in your midst. What do, what do signs do? Signs point to something else. All right. If I want to go to Starbucks, I don't go to the Starbucks sign on the side of the road and, and ask the mermaid for a Americano. Like, I'm here at Starbucks. Where's my coffee? You know, the sign points to the direction where the Starbucks is. Jesus, all these signs that he did, they pointed, I'm God. Jesus, all these signs and wonders and works that he did were to point people to the truth of who he who he is, he's God. And Peter says, he says, as you yourselves know, he's saying like you guys can't deny this. You know Jesus did these things. He did these things in Jerusalem. You guys saw them. You can't deny that that Jesus did these things, because he said he did them in your midst. God did them through him, and you can't deny. Uh, that that Christ has done all these things. In verse twenty three, the crucifixion. So the first thing we see in this part, this section where Peter is preaching about Christ, we see the incarnation, hundred percent God, hundred percent man, and we see the crucifixion in verse twenty three. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is a twofold effect here on Peter addressing the crucifixion. Number one, he says, God knew the death of Jesus was necessary because he planned it according to his definite plan. It says it in the text. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The death of Jesus did not take God by surprise. It didn't take him by surprise. It wasn't like Jesus got arrested on the night before he he was killed and, and God was like, I don't know what's about to happen, so uh, so I'll, I'll do this. No, it was a plan from the beginning. It was a plan all the way from the beginning. Why? Because God knew that someone would have to come, would have to pay the penalty for sin that Adam and Eve committed and that you and I have committed and he knew that it would take the death of his only son who had never sinned, who was perfect, who would have to go to the cross and bear the weight of the sin of the world. That was a definite plan by God. It wasn't something that he had to conjure up right in front of Pontius Pilate and made Pontius Pilate say, crucify him. No, he knew he was going to have to die because it was the plan of God to die, to take the sins of the world and die for you and me, my sin and your sin. The second part, though, is Peter is very direct about where human responsibility for the death lies. 
He says, you crucified and killed this Jesus by the hands of lawless men. So Peter says the death of Christ was determined. It was a definite plan that God had planned forever ago. But you Jews are not excused for this. You Jews are not excused for this. He talks about uh, probably in this this verse here he may be referring to maybe the the jewish leaders like the Pilate and those who made the decision to to crucify jesus but the the crowds are still not excused because when they bring jesus and barabbas out in front they're all screaming crucify jesus give us barabbas so the whole nation they are held accountable they are guilty of crucifying Jesus. And we also must see ourselves as being guilty for the death of Christ. It can be easy for us to say, you Jews killed your Messiah. How could you do that? But we should look in the mirror and see that by our sin, by our rejection of Christ, we are as guilty as as those who scream crucify him in Jerusalem. The third thing, the resurrection, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I think, maybe this isn't, uh, I'll just go ahead and say it. (laughs) A picture, when it says loosing the pangs of death, this is pretty similar to like childbirth, you know, like when a baby comes and a, a, a baby, like when it comes, it's just coming. Like there's no, like, I, I think I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, like there is no holding it back, right? I mean, like when a, when a baby comes, like it is coming. There's no way you can like cinch down, grab it. There's like no what Peter says here, what Peter says here is similar where it says God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. It means that when Jesus was coming, the gates of hell, death, the grave, Satan were trying to hold on to him, but could not hold on to Christ because he was coming up out of the grave. There was no way that the grave, hell, death, Satan, nobody could stop Christ from coming out of the grave because God said, come out of the grave, and Jesus came out of the grave. The resurrection of Christ is the overwhelming evidence that Jesus is God. Nobody in the history of the world has died and come back to life. My wife corrected me last night and said, Lazarus came back to life, but he died again. Jesus did not die again. When He resurrected, He was ascended to the glory of God sitting at the right hand. It changes everything. The resurrection of Christ is central to the Gospel because without the resurrection, we have no hope. If Christ is still in the ground, we are hopeless. What we're doing here today is useless. It's futile. There's no good to it. We should all just go to the house. Because that's what Peter, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, if the resurrection of Christ isn't true, we of all people are most to be pitied. Because we have believed in a false lie that Jesus resurrected from the grave. But he goes on to say, but in fact Christ has risen from the grave. Therefore our hope's not in vain. Our preaching's not futile. Our faith gives us hope. Christianity, the resurrection of Christ, is what sets us apart from any other religion. We worship and serve a risen Lord, not a dead God. So Peter gives his claim on who Jesus is. He's God. In verse 25 through 35, Peter is now going to support his argument for the resurrection by quoting two psalms that could only be fulfilled by Christ. So this is a good application for us to to just look at. If uh, you're 
trying to support something, make sure you support it with the Bible. Pretty simple. And that's what Peter does with two Psalms here in verse 25 through 35. 25 it says, for David says concerning him. So this is David concerning Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaking. Shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is a psalm of, of confidence where um, this, could, this could not be fulfilled by David because it speaks of someone whom the grave could not hold and who did not undergo decay. Alright, so this, it's... David couldn't have written this, so it has to be Christ who fulfilled this because he says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. It also shows that the resurrection was God's intention all along. So all even not only does the Old Testament point us to the coming of Christ, but the Old Testament also points us to the resurrection of Christ. So it tells us that Christ is coming, but it's also that Christ will res- will be resurrected from the grave. So the resurrection is not a New Testament idea. It's an Old Testament idea as well that has been predetermined from the foundation of the world. So David is speaking of the Christ where he says, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. I have strong confidence the Lord is at my right hand. My heart was glad. My tongue will rejoice. My flesh also dwells in hope because Christ is resurrected and he's at the right hand of the throne. And you will not let your Holy One see corruption. So... Just as God had a definite plan for the death of Christ, He also had a definite plan for the victorious resurrection of Christ over death. So in verse 29 through 33, Peter begins to expound on Psalm 16 and justify his interpretation of it. So in verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So now Peter is given, he has quoted that psalm and he is saying, look, David wrote this psalm and I tell you with confidence about David that he died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. There are some theologians, historians that say where Peter is preaching this sermon at is actually really close to where David's tomb is at. And so Peter very well could have been pointing to David's tomb while he's preaching this sermon and saying, Psalm 16 can't be about David because David died and is in his tomb. You can go over there and check it out. Jesus' tomb, the stone's been kicked back. David's tomb is still there. He hasn't resurrected. You could dig it up and you may find some bones there. But this psalm is not about David because David died. So it has to be about Jesus. So he says his tomb is with us to this day. You can go look at it if you want to. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to, to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter's saying, David being a prophet and knowing that God had promised David in Second Samuel that there would be a descendant who would sit on the throne of David forever and would, would rule and reign. Peter is saying he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. He knew that it was Christ who was going to rule and reign. When he wrote that psalm. Foresaw about the resurrection. He was not abandoned to Hades. God did not abandon the body of Jesus. He did not see corruption. His body did not decay. He was dead three days and then he was resurrected. And then in verse 32. 
Peter again says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. If the resurrection of Christ isn't enough witness, or isn't enough evidence to believe that Jesus is God, Jesus appeared to many witnesses after His resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that He appeared to up to 500 people, and Paul says some of those people are still alive that you can go ask them today. So Jesus didn't just resurrect and then not show himself to anybody. No, he appeared to a lot of people. And Peter's saying, we're all witnesses of this. How, how can you not be that? Like, that's pretty good proof. Like I, I saw him live, I saw him die, and I saw him after he was resurrected. So he's saying we're all witnesses of this. Verse 33 being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So now that He is resurrected, He is ascended, He is exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So He's going back to the Holy Spirit being poured out. He's saying, because He's been resurrected, because He's been exalted to the throne of God, and receiving from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, He has poured out what you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he's saying, this is it. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. This is a promise from the Father. Jesus is exalted to the highest place, a position that anyone could be exalted. He is exalted to the right hand of God. Verse 34 says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And this is the highest, highest view of Christology that we can see. This description of Jesus' position suggests an intimate connection between Jesus and the Father and an equality between them. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Like that, like that, that, that is, you can't get any higher than that. And that is exactly where Christ is. He is exalted to the right hand of the Father. Paul says in Philippians, he talks about this in Philippians 2, about Christ being humble even being humble enough to go to the the point of death with dying on a cross. And then he talks about his exaltation of Christ being at the right hand of God, where he says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is where Christ is. This also indicates the exalted position of Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, where he will stay until he brings judgment on his enemies. Number five. I may have lost you on the numbers. It doesn't really matter. Uh, Verse 36. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Verse 36. So Peter is just just blowing this up. I mean, he he has preached from Joel... He has preached the person of Jesus Christ. He is is supporting his argument of the resurrection by quoting Psalms and David and saying that I'm not just making this up. Like this is in the Bible. Like you can go read it yourself. And then he's talking about the exaltation of Jesus and that the Lord said to my Lord said in my right hand. And now he's saying in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He said, the Jesus that you crucified 50 days ago, God has made him Lord and Christ. You thought you could get do away with him. You thought you could shut him up and, and make him stop saying that he's God. But you really didn't because God resurrected him, raised him up, exalted him to the highest position anyone could ever be exalted to. And he is saying... You should know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ. You can't, I mean, you can't beat him. (laughs) 
You can, I mean, you can't. There's what, what else are you going to do? You can't. He's God. Can't do anything else. You submit to him. Believe in him. The term Lord in this context, because when I was reading this, I was I was like, what what does this mean? The Lord and Christ. Like, what is this? What's the difference here? So the term Lord in this context shows in particular Jesus's lordship over salvation and the distribution of salvation's benefits. So when it says Lord, he's Lord over salvation. And he he freely gives salvation's benefits. If, if you read in um, uh, Ephesians 1 where Paul talks about how we have been blessed and, and these spiritual blessings, how we've been adopted and God has uh, lavished His grace on us. The, the Lord here shows Jesus' Lordship over salvation. He is Lord over salvation. We cry out to Him for salvation. And the Christ is the figure of deliverance. God raised Jesus to come directly into God's presence in heaven the very one the Jewish leaders crucified is the unique anointed one whom God placed at his side. This point is made to establish their guilt and need to repent. So Christ has been exalted. He sits enthroned as the anointed one. And is a, a picture and a sign of their their need for repentance. Can't can't get rid of him, can't kill him. He's Lord. Submit to him. Believe in him. All right, verse 37 through 39. Almost done. Number six. So Peter has just preached this marvelous, awesome message. Now let's see how the people respond. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter... And the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This is an amazing response. They are cut to the heart. They realize. I think now they realize when we killed our Messiah. Peter has just shown us. And he was who he says he was. And they are cut to the heart. When the gospel is proclaimed, the Spirit does the work of conviction and people respond in obedience to the gospel. This is why oftentimes we don't just do altar calls because we believe that when the Spirit of the Lord brings conviction, like you can call on the Lord like, now you don't you don't you don't have to cry and, and sob and and all that to to be a Christian like those things are good if you, I mean if if I'm not saying you, if you cry you're not saved but I'm just saying like oftentimes we see this manipulation of I mean I worked at a student ministry camp for like three years I, I know what I'm talking about you see like 15 teenagers crying and like everybody's crying and nobody knows why everybody's crying and they're just like this is awesome you're like what's awesome like I don't know it's just awesome like well I got saved well you got saved on Tuesday night too though and you were crying so like I don't know what you're saying all right and so, but the the people's response here, when the when when the gospel is proclaimed, like they're like, "What do we do?" This is a very sincere response to the gospel. And every time the gospel is proclaimed, you make a decision. Every everybody will make a decision when the gospel is proclaimed. You either respond in obedience or you respond in rejection of the gospel there's no middle ground to live in when it comes to the gospel of jesus so we either submit or we reject the gospel of jesus they say brothers what shall we do and peter said to them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit he says repent Turn from your sin, cry out, beg, ask for forgiveness from the Lord for crucifying Jesus. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is a promise like those who call on the name of the Lord 
will receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Peter's saying. He's like, repent, believe the gospel, be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Just going back to Ephesians 2, where the, the, the gift of salvation is not only for the Jews, but it's extended to the Gentiles also. It's a, he says, uh, it, this is when, it, when he says, for all of you who are far off, it doesn't only mean geographically, but it means you who are Gentiles, who are considered to be far off, it's for you too. You can receive this. There's a promise for you and for your children whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. That is a huge, huge statement. It is nothing... When Christ saves someone, it is, it is a, nobody's work, nobody's drawing. Christ alone is the one who draws a person to Himself. You can't... You can't make that up. You can't do you can't do that on your own. It has to be the work of the Spirit drawing people to himself. Verse forty and forty one. The church begins to grow. Peter it says, Peter and with many other words. He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying... So Peter is continuing to exhort them and saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. He's saying, save yourselves. This, this generation is crooked, messed up. Save yourselves. Cry out on the name of the Lord. That's the same call for us. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Put your faith and trust in Christ. Only Christ alone can bring salvation and deliver you from the bondage of sin. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people just got saved. <laughs> you remember how many people were in the church in chapter 1? Like 120? 3,000 people. That, that, like, that is amazing to see what the Lord is beginning to do in the church in this very first sermon. Now, we'd probably be foolish to think that everybody at Pentecost that day believed in Christ because it says in verse 41, those who received His Word probably indicates that not all people believe that day but there were 3,000 people who believed that day and the church is beginning to grow and we will see as we continue to study throughout the book of Acts the proclamation of the gospel stays the same you killed Jesus he was resurrected the people don't like it they beat Paul Peter James they, they kill whoever preaches this gospel and it is the simple, consistent gospel that is relevant today. From the first sermon of the other, from the early church to today in 2016, the gospel is the same. And that is what we are to proclaim is the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. So, in conclusion... Peter's first sermon exposes the sin of the people for crucifying and killing Jesus. Shows that he's exalted. The people respond. The same should be for us. If you do not know Christ, call out unto Jesus for salvation and for forgiveness of your sins. Before it is too late, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, call out on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. It is for all who will put their faith and trust in Him. There is no discrimination. It's one Spirit, one Lord. We all have access through the same Spirit to the Father. So if you do not know Christ, 
we would love to talk to you today and help you understand what it means to follow Jesus the rest of your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Um, God, thank you for your faithfulness um, to Joel, even in the Old Testament, to see his prophecy come to fulfillment in Acts at Pentecost. Lord, thank you for the boldness and the faithfulness of Peter to go from denying that he even knew you to standing up and preaching the gospel with such boldness and clarity and as he would give his life for the gospel. Thank you for doing a work in his life that we can all learn from and that we can all look at and see the the grace of God in his life. And thank you for empowering him to to boldly stand and explain what you had done at Pentecost and bring in the Spirit. Help us to see the urgency of salvation for those who do not know you. Help us to see that we are living in the last days. The day of the Lord is at hand. The urgency for salvation is needed. And help us to live our lives to call people to repentance and follow Jesus Christ all their days. And Lord, I pray if someone here does not know you, Lord, please, we would plead and beg and urge that they would not leave without talking with someone and asking what it, what does this mean to follow Christ? What does it mean? Maybe someone here has been cut to the heart by the gospel today, and Lord, pray that you would save them by your power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.